0: Welcome to this episode of CDM Media's Executive Insights. I'm your host, JD Miller. Data drives nearly every single business today, but accessibility continues to be an issue for many leaders. Today's podcast is an excerpt from a recent fireside discussion I had at our CDO SoCal Summit with Natalie Jacobs. Natalie is the Vice President Portfolio Management at Warner Music Group. She's a 20-year music industry veteran with a specialization in music publishing and the complexities of music data, beginning her career when the industry was still analog and hadn't fully embraced the shift to a digital space. Having worked her way up from an entry-level clearance admin, she's now part of the leadership team, helping drive a comprehensive tech and data strategy to support the needs of the modern music industry. When I return, we'll be joining that session recorded live in progress. I want to start off because music is so interesting to me and where data's gone in music um, is leaps and bounds um, over the last few to few years for sure. So as we talk about unlocking the inner analyst within us all, talk to me, how are things different today than three to four years ago when it comes to data and music? Well, I think the, the focus on
1: data has shifted considerably. So if you think about music, historically you think about an a and person, they're going out, they're going to a club, right? They are looking for a band, they're looking for a songwriter, they're looking for something like that. Um, and the pandemic, which has accelerated many different areas also accelerated the shift to, we're now searching for talent using data Instead of actually like going to a live show because maybe there wasn't a live show to go to, so now we're looking at who's actually on TikTok. I met a songwriter who was found on TikTok with our Nashville office, and I was like, they were like, he's our first TikTok signing. That's kind of crazy because you've got somebody who you know may never have been surfaced previously, who is a, not a name that anyone's ever heard of has like 3.4 million followers on TikTok and is worthwhile signing. So the, uh, the landscape of how we're even like searching for talent has really shifted significantly, accelerated by the pandemic, into a space where we can now use social media. We can use their own sort of self-promoted um, just world that they're creating, whether it be putting into platforms like... Um, SoundCloud or something like that where they're self-releasing content and they're creating their own data and it's allowing them to be found by larger companies such as Warner or Universal or EMI.
0: So it is interesting though because people self-releasing music, self-releasing their art, education for those people is different, isn't it? Correct. Talk to me about that.
1: Correct. So with music, um, as an industry, data is very challenging because it's really the, the inception of it is driven by creative folks. So the people who are sitting in a studio, the people who are creating music in their basement, they're not really thinking about the data. They're not thinking about how they they should really focus on making sure they're getting certain elements of it right so they can be found easily. I will use an example. We see this a lot in the space of hip-hop artists and so on, where they're releasing something under a pseudonym. And I had an intern once who was looking for an artist who we had no legal name, and we had no idea what this person was called. And through a number of Google searches, we finally found this person on Twitter. So he was under his pseudonym on Twitter. We still didn't know what his legal name was, but in order to actually contact him, we had to figure out a way to get him to follow us back so we could do a direct message. And it was, in, it was like unlocking something crazy because just by searching them, we were like, oh, well maybe we should search for other people on Twitter. And how do we get them to follow us back so we can communicate with them? And I never saw this kid so excited. He came in, he's like, I found Papa Smurf. Wasn't joking. And it was like, well, wow, Papa Smurf. you like, he's got a legal name. That's what we need to be able to communicate with him. So, you know, in the in the advent, and that was already probably 10, 12 years ago, in the advent of where we are now, where people are self-releasing, how do you get that independent creator, that person who's thinking, oh, I want to put out something cool, I'm feeling inspired, I'm feeling creative, to also think, I've got to leave enough breadcrumbs. I've got to leave enough data breadcrumbs along the way to allow somebody to find me, to be able to actually you know, engage with my stuff in a way that could be purposeful down the line. Um, it's definitely a challenge because you've got the self-creators, but even within the creators who are managed by a music company, also still very challenging. They're in the studio. They're not thinking about, oh, we should log everybody that was here. We should make sure we talk about who's receiving what credits, who's receiving what share of the copyright, and so on. They're not thinking about it at that level. So it becomes very reactive, where six months later, we're trying to release the album, we're like, well, who was there? Do they remember? Um, and it makes it, it makes it very challenging.
0: Yeah, it, it's not like people are putting stuff out there. You're not putting stuff out going, Natalie Jacobs, come find me. It's Papa Smurf. It's yes. Dude Perfect, or whatever it is. Right. So that makes it a huge challenge to be able to find somebody. It does. Um, and, you know, talk to me, how are you educating these artists then?
1: Um,
0: I think that with the, you know, the,
1: the prevalence of things moving into such a digital space and, you know, the sort of your digital footprint and the awareness of people becoming familiar with what their digital footprint means in different platforms, I think that they are somewhat self-training in, in the sort of very public arena. Um, within, you know, a music label or a music publisher You know, I think that there's just an overall transparency about the types of deliverables that they are needing to provide to us, encouraging them to use certain platforms or certain, um, you know, just just overall communication as to how they're going to get their information in the sooner. That's often driven by money. The sooner you give us the information, the more likelihood that you will get paid correctly within the time frame that you expect. Now, that's going to be a huge driver because, of course, we all know musical artists are generally starving. (laughs) I'm kidding. But that's, you know, that's the old trope is like, you know, the music, the starving musician. Well, we're, you know, they can help that. They can help their case where if they give us the information, they get things in line, they write their deals, they provide us their shares and what they're claiming, that's going to lead directly to royalty payment in a faster process. And so, you know money being the driver there, being the main motivation, I think that's how we get them
0: along. You talked to me a little bit about the growth of of Spotify, for example, 50% growth since 2020. Um, (laughs) This is a sensitive subject. Is the album dead?
1: I'm going to provide a personal opinion on this. Um, I think the advent of streaming, where the focus became very much on single download, right? People stopped having to buy the whole album to get the one track that they wanted. So just whether it be downloading, streaming, and then even more beyond that, you know, you then go into the space of YouTube. Now you're in, you know, Spotify and Apple, but then now you've got TikTok, where I don't even know if the album's dead. I think a 30-second snippet of music might be where we're heading. So it's, you know, it's very interesting to me, because I think there are some artists who are very much sticking to the album we are in a space where, you know, there's a little bit of pushback on going entirely digital. Kids still love to buy their vinyl. My 10-year-old has a vinyl that he loves, and he sat there and he read his, he read his LP liner notes with the lyrics, and it was a very proud moment for me as, <laughs> as, a, music, uh, as a music person. But, um, you know, there is, there is going to be that sort of element of people who always want to hold on to a little bit of that analog and sort of reject going fully digital. But... Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, it really has it really has completely shifted the focus away from having to buy a body of work to being able to buy a single element within that.
0: Yeah, and Metallica Seventy Two is coming out, so I'm excited for that. See, I'm going to buy the whole go. thing on vinyl. It's going to happen. There you go. Uh, talk to me a little bit. We we've talked you know various points of today about data literacy. How do you develop data literacy with non-analyst business units like you have in the media industry?
1: well even within you know the labels within the publishers historically not even just you know within a specific company just as an industry again with the creative drivers you know a lot of focus has not been on maintaining good data over many many years so now we're in a situation where we're trying to move into that data space and trying to really sort of ramp up our data capabilities but we're also sitting there going well we've got you know 60 years of copyright rulings that we don't know how we're going to shift that without the lack of industry with the lack of industry standards. You really have a lot of very fragmented data, a lot of data silos, a lot of people who are just very inconsistent, don't have standards, and it's the same people who were like, oh, maybe I'll just skip putting that field in the system, but then you know their their boss is now asking for something that pulling from that field. And it could be something as simple as release date and you've got inconsistencies in that space and it makes it very, very difficult. So one one of the things we're really working on is sort of getting everybody at whatever level of the company, at whatever level you are, it could be an entry-level person, making them understand the importance, understand the importance of that one data element that seems insignificant now, how significant it's going to be later when somebody says, hey, tell me everything that we have that was released in 1962, and we don't have the coverage to be able to pull all of that information because, well, somebody didn't think it was that important to pull it in. So you have to, you have to encourage um, sort of the, the conversation with the technology team. You know, we've talked somewhat about translators. I think that's where my team has historically fallen into is that translation space between the business who don't understand why the data is important the technology team is like, well, there's six release dates. Which one do you want? The business saying, I don't even realize there were six release dates. I don't know. The same. technology saying, well, fine, we'll pick one. And then the business being like, oh, you picked the wrong one, right? How do, how do you know I picked the wrong one? You you didn't know there were six of them. So it's really beginning to sort of drive that conversation. I think it's as important to provide the technology team context. And I think this is something that Kathleen was kind of alluding to earlier, they don't need to be experts, but they need to understand the basics of why something like a release date is important. And on the flip side of that, entry-level analysts could be an intern. They need to understand why it may seem like a stupid field and maybe the system's not requiring you to add it in, but if you have it, you should put it there because you never know when we're going to need it later down the line. So it's really shifting. Um, We actually use the sort of business-required versus system-required fields a lot. There's system-required fields that's going to stop you and say you can't go further unless you put that in. Then you've got the business-required fields where it's like, well, the system's not making you, but you should put it in. Um, and sort of really bridging that gap between the two sides and um, applying that context and just building understanding.
0: So let's pull that through a little bit because you know, what do you see as the key components for improving... Yeah, you know, data quality and completeness. Music industry, not known for data governance. Nope. It's not really, <laughs> data standards not really a thing. So how, how can that change? Um, again, I think
1: in a lot of ways for a songwriter, for an artist, for somebody who's on the more creative space, who they want to make music their career, they want to earn money off of their creative content. Again, it's going to be driven somewhat by the passion, but also... Ultimately, they want to earn money, so they want to get their royalties. So they will drive change when they start seeing results. They're like, oh, if I do this better, I will actually be able to pay, get paid, sorry, um, and that's going to be inspiring to them. If I give the label the right information, they'll pay me faster. If I give, um, even if they're self-publishing, they're putting it into Spotify themselves or some, you know, through some third-party delivery mechanism, they can get paid faster. That's all very important. Within the company, within the companies within the industry, um, I think it's, it's very laborious right now. There's a lot of manual, line by line by line, trying to weed through data and just looking at all of these holes, and it's so confusing, and it really slows down processing. It slows down just the ability to focus on the things that are really important because you're just weeding through data line by line by line. You know, you've got, you've got people within the industry who receive, you know, thousands of lines of data, and they have to sit there and, like, look at it themselves and highlight it and go into a system and look it up and grab a screenshot and send it off somewhere. And that's not really, I, th- I don't think, joyful for anybody in their day-to-day job. Um, you know, we have data cleanup folks that we switch what they're doing every so often because otherwise we think they'd all just the turnover would be excessive and they would just leave. So it's really, you know, a productivity being able to get through the dredge of the repeated over and over and over again manual review of data take it to something else, be able to get to the next step, be able to unlock the analytics, be able to do something purposeful with the data. It's nice to have all the data, but you've got to do something cool with it.
0: Let's talk transformation. In what ways can product and and project teams contribute towards data transformation strategies?
1: Um, In a similar way to um, what I was just saying about the sort of system-required fields versus business-required fields, um, I think that a lot of times the technical, technical teams, you know, they're kind of moving forward with something. They don't necessarily understand all the context. And the business for music anyways, there's a lot of gray area. So for every time someone says, here's a rule, this is the rule we wanna put in the system, the business is going to have an exception to that rule every single time. So what we, again, it goes into that like conversation, bringing context to the technical teams, being able to find a middle ground where like, okay, we can't necessarily account for all of your exceptions, but we're gonna start creating something that's flexible enough to be able to give you a platform in which to include some of your collection, um, your exceptions. Really getting the business involved. We spend a lot of time with our business partners because there's nu- nuance. Nuance is one of the words we use all the time in music. Um, getting them engaged, of being able to say, hey, this is what you want. Like, tell us what you want your standard to be in the system. Tell us how you want the flow to work. Tell us how we can improve this filter, improve this dropdown, and actually get them to sign off on it. Don't just make decisions without them, right? Because the more they get used to looking at the data elements, the more they get used to being engaged with whether it be a taxonomy, whether it be sort of defining certain, oh, this is, what, what do we mean by product? Okay, we're going to say, in this context, product is an album. In this context, product might be a song. So, you know, really getting them engaged in defining the differences and those nuances between multiple things that could mean very similar or the same. Like, they don't understand that. And by getting them engaged in the conversation and having their sign-off, it really helps them understand and better communicate as well with the tech team. So the tech team comes to them and says, we want to do something. Now they have maybe a better way to explain it a better way to um, you know, facilitate what they really need. Because right now, you know, they get stuck. They don't know how to describe what, what it is they want. We're not a you know, historically data-driven industry, but we're getting there. And it's, we've got a long way to go, but we're getting there.
0: On the phone, we talked about uh, AI and chat right. GPT. We talked about that today. and uh, But you brought up something a few I moments did. before we were able to take the stage and how some of the industries reacting pretty quickly to it. Talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Right. So the reason I, I mentioned it uh, briefly is because there was an article that someone at our, our office that actually just shared. Universal Music Group, and this article just went out in Billboard, Universal Music Group is actually asking the major DSPs to not allow uh, ChatGPT and you know AI sources basically to use their, their music, their copyright, their content to train the AI. Um, and I still don't remember, I, when, we, when we talked on the phone, I said that there was an artist who had recently come out as well and also said, you know, hey, the AI cannot write music with the heart. It's the vulnerability. It's the... Um, it sounds like
0: Bono. It's Bono. It wasn't
1: Bono. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Bono. It wasn't Bono. But, you know, it doesn't have... It might, it's going to bother me until I remember. But anyway, <laughs> like, um, it doesn't have the heart. So AI, yes, generative AI is going to be able to produce lyrics is going to be able to produce some kind of musical content. And probably there's people in the art space or the film space who are having the exact same thought right now, but it's like, it doesn't have the heart. And infringement is such a huge topic. You brought up Metallica. Mm-hmm. You look at something like that infringement case that Metallica had. What happens next when chat GPT produces a song and Metallica's like, hold on a second. That's our song. Now, historically, copyright law and legislation is so far behind. You think about the kind of copyright rulings that came from streaming, it was years. It takes years for that kind of stuff to get through the court. So, any kind of legislation about what the AI that's been around for six weeks is ish, ish um, whatever that AI is going to do, we're years probably from having that legislation in place to protect you know, intellectual property as created by an artist. And so it's an interesting space because on one hand, you have probably the more creative side who are very, very nervous about where this might go. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm looking at some of the examples today and I'm being like, yeah, we could use that to clean up some data or to model some data or to, you know, un- uncovering inconsistencies. Um, and it's finding that balance because you've really got the, the creative side that are just, you know, it's in a different space than how we would be possibly thinking about the data from a, you know, helping us to model or read through our data in a more efficient way.
0: I read an article recently where the artist Nick Cave um, was upset because people were putting into chat GPT, write a song about X in the voice of Nick Cave, and they, they did it, and he's like, it's close, but... This can't happen
1: that's got to be incredibly unnerving and i I completely understand that because at what point will it become indistinguishable right. you know how good is how good is the AI going to learn and that's again to, I'm sure to universal music's point they don't want the AI necessarily learning how to exactly replicate and I can't think of a universal artist so I apologize but like They don't want them to be able to exactly replicate because that can go up very easily. Anybody could put that on TikTok, on YouTube, or whatever. We struggle enough with identifying what's happened on TikTok (laughs) or Facebook, especially with the advent of Reels and those kinds of things. It's very difficult to identify what music's actually been used. So I will use the example of... um, you know, if you're creating a reel, a TikTok, something like that, you have the option to search for music and it'll bring up something. If you use that, that's fine. That's trackable, right? That data gets created. This reel contains this song, done, right? That's reportable. Now, if I'm creating a TikTok and I'm at a bar and Nick Cave is playing over the speaker, that doesn't get logged and registered in the TikTok system, right? That's You've got to do some kind of really good fingerprinting. Let's assume there's background noise. Let's assume there's people talking. Let's assume there's people drinking. Let's assume all of this stuff is happening. And somewhere in there, it's registering there's music. But it's going to be very, very difficult to identify what that is. So, um, you know, you also, on the flip side, if you've got an AI that creates a very good replica of Nick Cave and... And fi- audio fingerprinting is like, oh, that sounds like Nick Cave. Nick Cave's going to get paid. So there's the, <laughs> right. know, there, there's the other side of that. So, you know, that may have advantages. But, um, you know, it, it's, 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 a very, it's a very difficult challenge. Because I do, I do remember one day we were all standing around trying to figure out why we were receiving royalties for a YouTube video. And we figured it was because it was an artist and they were playing. There was music on the tour bus. And that's what was triggering the music royalty. Oh, wow. And it ended up with a few of us sitting there watching on someone's computer. It's probably like 2008, 2009. And we were all like, what's the song on the tour bus, right? And <laughs> and that's what we were figuring out because that's how we needed to apply it.
0: It is encouraging, though, that, you know, as you wait, as you mentioned, it's years before reg- regulations yeah. can happen, that the industry is self-regulating itself or starting to. Is that, that's encouraging, though, isn't it?
1: Um, I think so. I think the awareness um, and just the you know, the awareness of what data can do for us, the awareness of the gaps that we have, how do we fill those gaps? How do we really um, bolster our data warehousing, our data modeling, our data analytics? Um, All of those things, we are certainly moving in the right direction. And I do think as an industry, um, you know, just just the accessibility of people to actually improve their own data, I think it's going to come very quickly. We're already you know, working towards giving a portal an access for an artist or a songwriter or somebody to really put in their own information, like provide that to us in a more seamless fashion. Historically, it would probably be they would text their a and person, right? They would pick up the phone and call their A&R person and maybe give them some information. But now we're allowing, you know, sort of mobile access, like put it directly into our systems because now it's not a question of, Oh you called AR. r has to tell their assistant what the conversation was, and that assistant has to input it. We're now giving that sort of communication and transparency directly to the the end user the the creator, and saying, "Hey, you know what you can put this in yourself. Give us your accurate information, and that's immediately getting stored so now we've cut out like one, two, three middlemen um, and just getting getting so many people across the business just engaged and interested and having the conversations. And again, explaining why data is important to them, no matter where you are, you could be super senior, you could be, you know, very entry level, but, um, you know, you participate in it. It doesn't matter whether or not you think you do, like you have to understand that you do.
0: We only got about a minute or two left here. You know, final question for you. How do you feel the role of the data leader in media is going to be changing in the next few years?
1: Um, you know, I think I think it's going to be a very interesting time um, because you know we do have new technology all the time that is not necessarily music related, it's not necessarily film related, but it is impacting the industry in ways that we probably couldn't expect. So I even look at something like um, Roblox. You know, my ten-year-old, my eight-year-old, they love Roblox. They're going to play Roblox all the time. So we've actually gone into um, a space where Warner recently, I think they, they created a game in Roblox, a music game. You can go in there and do that. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the kind of data that comes from these new technologies, from the new things that we haven't even conceived of yet. You know, we're like NFTs. That's a product <laughs> now, right? So it's, it's potentially a music product. Uh, roblox gaming we wouldn't have thought of that as a music product but hey now we have some element of music product so it's going to be very interesting um, as a data leader to not only engage in the music industry of the past and like cleaning up the things that weren't up to par but need to be up to par now for the purposes of data tracking and analytics and really understanding you know what's already happened but you know we, when Napster happened, we didn't think Spotify was going to happen yet so really it's it's where do we go next? It could go in so many places and it probably isn't music industry that's driving it. Music is prevalent in all spaces, really I think that's one of the beautiful things about music. It doesn't matter. it's relevant in so many different spaces um, and because of that it it could it could end up anywhere and so I think that it's really going to be a question of looking at trends and trying to somewhat you know, stay on top of, looking backwards, but also looking ahead and being quick to react to whatever's coming, chat, GPT or otherwise, um, so that we can really just engage with that and bring it into the fold. And so we're, we don't make the mistakes of being 10 years behind, 20 years behind. We're actually current and there, and it's going to be those data leaders that really have to kind of stay there and bring that together. I also think that as an industry where everything's very fragmented and has been very siloed and, you know, people are doing things their own way, I think as an industry we're also going to probably come together a lot better because we, there's not. I think there's a general understanding, we can't just keep going the way we have been. We have to come together because that's the only way we're going to be able to keep up with these trends, keep up with where technology is going now. Um, remember My senior thesis a long time ago, was, it, was, it was about Napster, and I actually said that the music companies are going to either have to embrace this new digital world, or they're going to get eaten. And here we are, mm. and I'm not an oracle or anything like that, <laughs> but occasionally I think back to that, and I was like, oh, I was pretty smart when I was 21, you know? Um, but but I think it's, you know, beyond that, what's the next Napster, right? What's the next chat GPT? What's the next TikTok, whatever? What's What's the next trend? Um, music will probably be there, so, you know, let's keep up with that. Let's try and figure out how to make it work for us instead of fighting for it, well, against it.
0: Natalie, thank you so much. You're welcome. A big thank you to Natalie for sharing with us at the CDO San Francisco Summit. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of our Executive Insights podcast, check out cdmmedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm JD. Keep connecting.